welcome to another episode of Audio Judo. I'm Kyle. And I am Matthew. And um, today we are celebrating the life of Neil Peart, drummer and lyricist of the Canadian rock group Rush. Um, as many of you are aware by now, I'm sure Neil passed away on Tuesday, January 7th, 2020, at the age of 67, after a three and a half year battle with brain cancer. Um, I don't have any clever title for this episode. Uh, like so many of the articles I've read over the last five days, I have no charming turn of phrase utilizing his lyrics. I'm probably not going to quote his voluminous books and interviews, but just try to quote some of his lyrics from his songs to give people a better understanding of the kind of man that he was and the kind of person uh, and influence that he was on my life. Uh, where do I begin? Where do I begin to express what this singular man meant to me? Although he said in many interviews that the beginning was a cliche place to start. Alas, that is where I shall start, at the beginning. Uh, Neil used to quote Bob Dylan in interviews, and he'd say, the highest point of art is to inspire. And that's what he did to me in so many ways. I was listening to Rush at a very young age. Uh, my brother was a fan, and because I used to hear it so often, I became a fan too. However, I wasn't a fan of everything my big brother listened to, so there must have been something that resonated with me. At that age, five or six years old, it wasn't the dystopian lyrics of 2112. It wasn't the Tolkien-inspired view of Rivendell. It wasn't the ode to weed yet from A Passage to Bangkok. Nope. It was the drums. Those thunderous, glorious drums. My brother was a drummer, naturally, and naturally I wanted to be that too. And what I was listening to all those years ago was a master craftsman, a diligent worker and creator who valued, even then in his 20s, the importance of giving his best, always. He held in highest regard the importance and necessity of leaving that pool of sweat on the studio floor. But of course, I didn't know that at the time. It just sounded great. And it would be super easy for me to talk about his drumming for the next 45 minutes. Hell, I could talk about it for hours his legendary solos, the stick flips, the massive drum set with percussion galore in the early years, and then the revolving set with electronic percussion in the later years, changing his style completely at age 40 because he continued to strive to improve after releasing 14 records. But those have been covered so much. As I took time to collect my thoughts for this over the last five days, I've wondered why I feel so attached to a man I never met. Why am I grieving so hard for someone I never had a personal connection to? And I started to think about what connections I did have to him. First off, there was a relatability. I was born in the suburbs, like a lot of his audience. I was a scrawny, wannabe athlete and musician who read a lot, who watched science fiction and fantasy, and who struggled to fit in most of the time. I was trying to conform, but also trying to maintain some semblance of individuality. I wanted to be my own person, but I also wanted people to like me. And along come these lyrics from the 1982 album Signals and the song Subdivisions. Quote, Growing up, it all seems so one-sided. Opinions are provided. The future predecided, detached and subdivided in the mass production zone. Nowhere is the dreamer or the misfit so alone. This man gets me. And I knew thousands of young, 
marginalized and alienated boys felt the same way when they heard those lyrics. He gets it. We all wanted to grow up and do big things, but we all felt stuck. Through the years, he spoke to me at every turn. Songs about love, like the song Entree New from Permanent Waves. Quote, just between us, I think it's time for us to realize the spaces in between leave room for you and I to grow. Or songs about chance and faith, like the song off Roll the Bones called The Big Wheel. Wheel goes round, landing on a twist of faith. Taking your chances, you'll have the right answers when the final judgment begins. And songs, importantly, about temperament, like Prime Mover from Hold Your Fire, which still remains one of my favorite lyrical moments. From the point of ignition to the final drive, the point of the journey is not to arrive. Anything can happen. All these songs became the soundtrack of my adolescence, and I immersed myself in the music in my room, in my car, wherever music could be musicked. I poured over the liner notes of their records, knowing that he wrote the lyrics with wisdom, with humor, and with insight into the human spirit. Up until the early 1990s, that was all I really knew about him. Liner notes, tour books, song lyrics, occasional interview. I didn't really know what kind of a man he really was. I only knew what he chose to write about and reveal in that way. I forever carried the fear that he would be like so many of our sports icons, that away from the sport, those people were just nasty. I so didn't want him to be like that. And as I watched him from a distance, he certain, certainly didn't look like he was enjoying himself playing the drums. I know those parts were hard for me, but certainly for an accomplished drummer like him, they were a piece of cake after all these years. And wow, was that wildly inaccurate. In the due course of time, he would let us know what kind of a man he truly was. He was an introvert, true, and a private man. But through his lyrics, his books, and his other writings, he would let us in and show us more of his heart and humanity than only our closest friends ever would. After his wife and daughter passed away within 10 months of one another in 1997-98, he embarked on a 55,000-mile motorcycle journey, spanning months and multiple continents, trying to fan the tiny ember of what he referred to as his little baby soul. He was just trying to find a reason to get up every morning and utilize movement as the reason in and of itself. He documented this amazingly personal grief story in his book, Ghost Rider Travels on the Healing Road. An introvert, maybe, but a courageous one for sure. What kind of bravery must it have taken to share the most intimate of battles with the whole world? And while we, the air drumming public, worshipped him, and as Taylor Hawkins from the Foo Fighters said last week, he had the hands of God, this certainly humanized him. But it reinforced for me what I had been growing to believe for years, that this was not just a legendary drummer, but a really good human being. When his personal bat, uh, battles began, the internet was still in its infancy. So unless it was on the radio somewhere or somewhere someone else was talking about it, this information just wasn't readily available to the general public. The first I had learned about his family tragedies was in November 1998, a full year and a half after his daughter passed in a car accident and a mere six months after his wife of 20 plus years had passed of cancer, or most likely, as he put it, she had died of a broken heart. In November 1998, Rush released a live record called Different Stages. 
It was a three-CD set and had the old cardboard trifold case. When you opened it, the first thing you saw was the text, quote, And suddenly you were gone from all the lives you left your mark upon in loving memory of Jackie and Selena. Diehard Rush fans would have known that those are lyrics from the song After Image on the 1984 release Grace Under Pressure. Neil had written it about one of their studio assistants, Robbie Whalen, who had passed away unexpectedly in his 20s. Diehard fans would have also known who Jackie and Selena were, being mentioned many times before in tour books and his earlier writings. Quick internet searches even then would then verify that truth. Knowing that now, I think we all would have forgiven him and understood if he had called it a career right then and there. Selfishly at the time, I think we all wanted to believe he would return, but would it have not surprised me if he had stopped? Years later, he revealed that he had said exactly that. At his wife's funeral, he turned to his bandmates and told them, consider me retired. Shortly after, he would set off on his motorcycle journey to attempt to resurrect his soul. I had fully prepared myself to never hear a new Rush song or ever see them in concert again. So imagine my and everyone else's surprise when three years later, word leaked out that Rush had been in the studio for months recording a new album. Uh, We would find out later in Ghost Rider that he had pieced together what he could of his soul, found new love in his new wife, Carrie, and moved from Canada to Southern California. So Rush releases this new record, and he does exactly what you would have expected him and him alone to do. He faces it head on. Knowing that these songs would be sung and committed to tape, let alone sung in front of thousands on tour every night, and he'd have to carry and confront that weight, he did it anyway, and he let his art become the vehicle for his grief. From their comeback record, Vapor Trails, released in 2002, he writes in the song How It Is, Foot upon the stair, shoulder to the wheel, you can't tell yourself not to care, you can't tell yourself not to feel. That's how it is, and how it's going to be. This was a brave man. Through the course of the next decade, Rush was omnipresent, recording and releasing albums, touring, releasing books, appearing in movies and documentaries and TV shows, and a long overdue induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2013. Rush was all over the place. Through his writings, I continued to find out more and more about this man that I had admired for drumming and ended up finding so much more to admire him for than that. Through his loss, So many celebrities have come forward to talk about what a gentleman he was, what a warm and compassionate friend he was. Everyone knew the drum side. We even knew his erudite side. But he was also a loving and caring man of almost mythic proportions. He wrote letters, emails, postcards to his friend from just about anywhere and everywhere. Things that they will treasure for their lifetimes because they were important to him and he valued and loved these people enough to utilize his valuable time to honor them. This is the kind of man you want your kids to become. He was not influenced by religion. In the song Faithless, off Snakes and Arrows, he writes, I've got my own moral compass to steer by. A guiding star beats a spirit in the sky. I don't have faith in faith. I don't believe in belief. You can call me faithless, but I still cling to hope. And I believe in love, and that's faith enough for me. He's doing what is good and right not because there is some sort of tenet that says this is how you should act, but because it is the right thing to do. As I got older, I would bring my sons to their concerts as often as I could to start with the music and then to open the door to what kind of people they really were. Genuine, friendly, compassionate, strong, smart, adventurous, and loving, 
all traits you want your children to adopt. And as a testament to the band, with each passing year, there were more and more kids at the concerts. Fathers, sons, daughters, whole families, all passing the torch of what this band meant to them and what it could mean in the future. I started to reflect about all the people I had shared Rush with through the years, and it's too numerous to count. But I tallied up all the people that I saw them with. My big brother Mike through all the early years. John Sanamore and Joel Dubjaleski in 1986. Joe Susco in 88 and 90. Chris Delisle in 91. Heather and her brother Jeff in 94. Heather again in 97. Heather, Mike, my sister, and her husband in 2003. Heather, Rob, and Scott Steiner in 2005. Heather and my sons Christian, Connor, and Jacob in 2008. Heather again in 2008. Christian in 2009. Dan and Nick Mastraluca and Christian in 2011. Dan and Christian again in 2014. Mike in 2015. And one final time with Christian at the penultimate show in Irvine, California in August 2015. A lifetime of memories to be sure. But I knew that most people knew that this run couldn't last forever. As early as 1982, Neil was planning his exit from the stage. On the, song, on the album Signals, there is a song called Losing It, where he explored the loss of ability over time, knowing in your heart that while the mind may be willing, the body doesn't cooperate, or vice versa. He uses the lens of a dancer and a writer, remembering what they used to be able to do, but can do no longer, and he writes in his lyrics, Some are born to move the world, to live their fantasies. But most of us just dream about the things we'd like to be. Sadder still to watch it die than never to have known it. For you, the blind who once could see, the bell tolls for thee. He knew that whenever he got to the point where he couldn't do everything he expected out of himself on that stage every night, which was Herculean in the first place, then he would bow out and enjoy his retirement. There were not going to be small shows, one-offs, festival performances. There would be no once-a-year show or on-off Vegas residencies, regardless of the amount of money that would be thrown their way. Because he knew what a monster effort it was for him to get ready for a tour in the first place. There would be no giant money grabs, just a goodbye. The last tour would never be called a farewell, but he provided a nice roadmap if you knew what to look for. The final tour in 2015 would be the only tour that the song Losing It would ever be performed live as a way of saying, I'm getting to the end. He said on multiple occasions that he wanted their record Clockwork Angels released in 2012 to be his magnum opus. He wanted it to be his best drumming, his best lyrics. What better way to leave the stage than with your best? In the lyric sheet, for Clockwork Angels, he wrote little blurbs for the songs as he intended the record to be one complete narrative, a work of fiction with his autobiographical touches. And for the song The Garden, he wrote this small blurb. Long ago, I read a story from another timeline about a character named Candide. He also survived a harrowing series of misadventures and tragedies, then settled on a farm near Constantinople. Listening to a philosophical rant, Candide replied, that is all very well, but now we must tend our garden. I have now arrived at that point in my story. There is a metaphorical garden in the acts and attitudes of a person's life, and the treasures of that garden are love and respect. I have come to realize that the gathering of love and respect from others and for myself 
has been the real quest of my life. Now we must tend our garden. I think about this often. I think that this last song on their last record is his finest lyric ever. And how perfect. And what a fitting metaphor for a life well lived. The song closes with this line. The the treasure of a life is a measure of love and respect. The way you live, the gifts that you give, and the fullness of time, it's the only return that you expect. Well, Mr. Peart, you have inspired millions. You have earned and gathered all of our love and respect. The way that you lived, the gifts that you gave, has provided you with the greatest treasure of a life. Good sir, stand from your drum riser one last time, and with your right arm, as you did countless times before, wave goodbye to the adoring crowd. And now, we tend our garden. Well, all right, so thanks for listening to me. That was a, a bit of a opening salvo. <laughs> <laughs> that was very nice. That was beautiful. Thank you. It was much more eloquent than what I wrote. You didn't write anything. I did. Did I you? wrote uh, Rush, pretty great. Uh, Neil Peart, good guy. There you go. You summed it up. There you go. He could have saved me a heck of a lot of work. <laughs> could have. You killed a tree to print that out. I did. I, I just I wrote two lines. I did. Um, I had but, put on our, go ahead. Oh, see, but that was very beautiful. Thank that you. That was, uh, was a nice tribute right there. I had put up on the, uh, or Christian had put up on the website or on social media that um, was asking people to uh, send any memories they had or anything they wanted us to read on air. Uh, I was lucky to get uh, four four things from some people, uh, which I appreciate. I'm very grateful for. I know they wanted their memories to be heard, so uh, we could honor them by by reading some of them. Uh, that would be great. So uh, the um, this is uh, coincidentally from uh, the the main influence that I had my entire life. This is from my big brother Mike, who who wrote to me, and um, I will read what he said. I heard about Neil's passing while driving home from picking up Michael, his son, to visit for the weekend. It was an IM from a friend who incidentally lost her husband to suicide in December and was lamenting, quote, another loss. I fired back, what? I got dizzy, thankfully stopped at a red light, looked to my Facebook feed and saw your post. The your being me. When I was in late grade school, early junior high, I think, uh, my friend Mike Swiftney Swiftney turned me on to Rush. I got two eight tracks, Fly By Night and All the World's a Stage. I was in the school band but didn't have a kit yet. When I heard Neil's solo and all his breaks and fills and the fact that he was, quote, the professor on the drum kit, I was hooked. I was supposed to practice on a dorky snare at least 30 minutes a day and record my minutes on a card and turn it in. Right. But then, as all drummers who dig Rush would learn, air drumming is kind of like practicing. (laughs) So that is what I did. Practice with my sticks on my knees and pillows and chairs to every tune on those eight tracks. It was definitely best guess on most of it. Because of this practice... I was able to play a kit immediately the first time I sat at one. I credit Neil with the beginning and continuation of my percussive journey. I'm actually listening to Lakeside Park right now. 
Usually it's the lyrics that have hooks. His fills and beats did and are so recognizable on this track. Often repeated stuff were the easiest to master. Not sure I ever did, but every time I hear those hooks, I laugh. Not because it's funny, but because it brings me to the places of familiarity and levity. I'm so glad I could share this with you as much as we did. And I'm glad we went to all those shows. I did play 2112 a lot when my band Emo took Euchre and Hockey Fight breaks. We sucked, but we loved it. Everyone that knows the music knows it because you end up studying it. Can't help it. Explaining what Neil was doing in each part, like the impossible left-handed ascending Tom Phil in Temples of Searings, was one of my more socially awkward and obsessive tendencies that all drummers who know his shit will happily admit to, and will also unfortunately be invited to leave conversations as a result. More for us, I guess. It was interesting how he studied and continuously improved. I remember reading how he would take the then state-of-the-art beatbox and program it to something impossible, then make himself figure out how to play it on the kit. Probably how he came to the Tom Sawyer tablature he wished he'd never created. It sounds awesome, but from what I understand, it scared the shit out of him every time they played it live. I respect him for grieving how he did over his wife and daughter. I would like to think I'd have the courage and inertia to do that if I ever suffered a loss like he did. I didn't realize how much he influenced me, perhaps not as deeply as those that have read all his books and poetry or knew him personally, but significantly enough to have me acting like a crushed schoolboy. I wish I could have met him. I knew when we saw him in Vegas on their farewell tour that there would never be a drummer or band that would do this to me again. I suppose those are isolated to our youth. I'm glad it was him. I'm glad it was them. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, that was very nice. Very good stuff. Lots of uh, personal memories. Oh, I got nothing. Go ahead. You got nothing? Yeah. You're just sitting there well, listening I was, to that? What Go. I was going to say, I was going to wait until after we read uh, Christians as, as well. Yeah. Uh, your whole family is very uh, well-spoken. Yeah. Thanks, I, Mom I could, and Dad. I kind of already knew that, but. Yeah. Thanks, Mom and Dad. Uh, <laughs> this is from um, my old friend that I haven't seen in 25 years, I think. 26 years, maybe. A friend of mine, uh, Ron Saluski, a good guy. He wrote this to me, titled it A Farewell to King. Uh, last Friday, news broke that Neil Peart, the drummer from the band Rush, had passed away. This news was not something I was prepared for. Being a lifelong enthusiast of music, Rush has been present in my musical vocabulary for the majority of that time. My first exposure to the band was probably hearing the song Fly By Night on my local rock radio station. The first individuals I can remember being Rush fanatics were a couple of brothers I knew, Mike and Matt Schapansky. (laughs) Both being drummers, they naturally had an infatuation with the band. Rush is one of those bands that people either love or don't care for. Of course, I am in the former. The music can take me back to times of joy, times of strife, times of sadness, times of happiness, times of excitement, times. That's what makes them such an iconic band to me. They are a peart of my DNA. (laughs) (laughs) They are indeed a trio of virtuosos each on their respective instrument. Neil took the drumming duties as well as writing 98% of their lyrics over the years. It's about accurate. 
This is what makes them so special. Not only was Neil the king of drums, he wrote the flippin' lyrics. <laughs> Having drawn influences from a plethora of areas, his lyric writing shifted, evolved, and covered lots of ground over the years. Neil was an avid reader of literature. This lent for some heady lyrics most of the time. I think it is safe to say that with a few exceptions, Neil's lyrics were never flippant. This has kept things interesting and fulfilling. Neil's lyrics make me wonder. They make me want to learn more, absorb more. Most importantly, no matter what emotion I am feeling, Neil's lyrics make me feel like I am not alone as I wander the face of the earth. Rush took one hell of a journey over the 41 years they were active with Neil as their drummer and lyricist. Musically, they were so often experimental. I can't say I was with them 100% of the time, as there were times when their musical shift didn't quite jive with me. You can never quite completely control where life takes you and what is musically agreeing with you at a given point in time. However, somewhere along the way, as my life continued to shift and evolve and I matured, I grew to enjoy and respect the music I had previously drifted from. With age comes experience and their music is a fantastic companion. There's no doubt in my mind that they will always have a distinct place in my life. They will always be here. Thank you to Rush. And on the occasion of this horrible, tragic loss, thank you, Professor. Thank you for the many years of music, life lessons, and enjoyment. Thank you for a journey that goes beyond music. And thanks, Ron, for sending that in. Appreciate it. Also, another great, another great tribute there. Right, it's good stuff. Yeah. People, people are sending. People sent good stuff. I'm, uh, I'm happy to read it. I'm happy that we have some, uh, some input from, from yeah. the listeners. Uh, I'm happy we have some listeners. That's a surprise to me. I hope, maybe I'll increase my tens of listeners. <laughs> uh, so this is from my son, Christian, oddly enough. Who you went to see. You took him to see Rush several times live. Five right? times, yeah. yeah. And this is from him. Nearly every time I've gone to see Rush, something noticeably weird has happened. Maybe not paranormal weird, but weirder than I would say is average. Out of the five Rush concerts I've seen, this is a non-exhaustive list of such encounters. My younger brother falling asleep during, if I remember correctly, BU2B. You were right, Christian, but that was the song he fell asleep in. (laughs) Taking two hours to leave a parking lot following a concert due to an enormous crowd and only one exit having to drive a larger car than I was used to with my driver's permit because I befell the DD responsibility. (laughs) Waiting in a long line to get in one concert, listening to my dad point out which concert shirts were originals and which were made later. But it's not bad. It's fitting. Rush is weird. They're a bunch of weird guys. Their videos are weird. Their stage setups are weird. Their music is weird but they're so much more important because of it to anyone who feels weird being shown that it's not only common, but it's creative and beautiful and powerful songs like Middletown dreams and the way the wind blows that tell people that it's okay to be who they are, that pretending to be something or someone else isn't necessarily a good thing. Songs like the garden or time stands still that inform us to take the time we have and make the most of it. Rush was weird in order to show us what it means to them to be human and maybe help inform us of what we think of ourselves and our world. Becoming a teenager was a rough time for me, just as it was for everyone else. 
And as I tried to find solace in different activities or passions to calm the chaos for a moment, I found the album Vapor Trails, a divisive choice, but it spoke to me. It was raging and passionate, beautiful if raw. I listened to songs that banged through the speakers and threatened to destroy them, only to fade into pleading solos. There was tragedy, but optimism. It was changing as it went through, and it was just what I needed. I think everyone who listens to Rush has a moment like this, a moment where a song or an album struck them at the right time and helped them make sense of a time in their life where nothing really did. With Neil passing, we've lost an idol, someone who took their heart and bared it to us and talked about what really mattered in the music and yet never believed he was better than anyone else. His words will continue to carry their weight to the people who listen, and he will always be remembered as someone who shared what they had and gave what they could and never took more than was, de than was deserved. And though I may not listen to them constantly, I will always go back and remember those moments etched into my mind as clear as the emotion and power conveyed in the songs, like hearing my father explain 2112 patiently, step by step to me with a passion and captivation that still inspires me today. Thanks, Christian. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good kid right there. Right. What, how did you create that? I don't know. I don't know. That's all Heather, your it, wife, it's all, right? It has to be. It has to be. There's not. It has to be. <laughs> the English language potentially from your side of the family. Everything else from Heather's. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All the yes. This yes. That sounds about right. The ability to talk your way out of any situation. Our side. <laughs> I can explain it. And then uh, this last bit from show consultant Chris Delisle, um, who I talk to often. Uh, he wrote this. Anyone who ever heard the music of Rush has to have been struck by the powerful, inventive, and precise drummer Neil Peart. As a non-musician, there's not much... I can add that hasn't been said before and better by all the by all the drummers he's inspired. I would only be offering an air drumming of superlatives. I would much rather talk about his lyric writing. His songs are all about something. Little essays, little philosophies, little stories, little lessons. He's guiding, instructive, helpful. Neil's passing feels so personal to me and clearly to millions of others because he helped form part of my conscience. He helped forge He helped forge my identity during adolescence. All those Rush album covers felt like patches or armor covering up all my insecurities. The professor supplied a vocabulary in which to articulate and a syllabus of things to ponder. My relationship with Rush is not much different from anyone else's relationship with them. Like many other Rush fans, I imagine... I felt like a character right out of the song Subdivisions, cast out, somewhere along the fringe of feeling totally uncool. I did feel too many feelings. I had too many things on my mind. I thought myself a restless young romantic, old enough to know what's right, but young enough not to choose it. Yes, my entryway into Rush was through my brother's copy of the Signals album while he was away at college, and clearly Neil had written these songs for someone like me. 
Their songs made me feel powerful and smarter and deeper and wider. His lyrics are, are articulate and convincing. Yeah, I guess my heart and my mind are in conflict and have been forever. Who knew? Who knew people wanted more territory for themselves for better beer? I didn't know until I listened to Rush, but now I, but now I knew. As clear and direct as his writing is in most of his songs, I still have no idea what three of my favorite songs even mean. What does having an air of joie de vivre have anything to do with having skin as thick as thieves? Nothing, Chris, it just rhymed. What does having a roadmap to Jupiter have anything to do with being young and wandering the face of the earth? What is Tom Sawyer even about? One of my earliest impressions of that song had been skewed because I thought he was singing about space invaders getting by us in the arcade game or something. The synthesizer bit following immediately afterwards seemed to back up the assertion. The song sounds like it comes right out of an arcade game. Hold Your Fire, A Show of Hands, and Presto were my three albums. They were the ones that came out once I had become fully aware of who Rush was as a band. They were the albums I played over and over again while working on homework during high school. There's a batch of songs on those three records in particular that resonated so much with me at the time. I wanted to be a songwriter. I wanted to help people to instruct and guide, give people sort of comfort. Songs like Time Stand Still, Mission, Subdivisions, Marathon, Presto, and yes, even Anagram from Ongo. He wrote about life, death, romance? Yes, even romance. <laughs> Though to be fair, you really have to search possibly project and exaggerate to find romance in songs like Presto and Anagram. But I went to an all-boys school. No girls for four years. It was a whole thing. <laughs> I could talk about my three favorite albums or three favorite songs or which songs meant the most to me when I felt down and out. I could talk about how some in the fanhood think me less of a man because I've never been able to enjoy Caress of Steel. But I'm not going to do that. It has nothing to do with Neil. He's just someone I wish I knew or met so I could thank him for all the work he put out in the world. For he and his bandmates, through all their hard work, created magic in this world. And I just feel so sad that he paid such a fabulous price in order to create a little paradise for us all. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Those were great. Really, really good stuff. Yeah. What you got, Kyle? Uh, well, I don't know. Uh, I, I was going to say, I think it's uh, interesting that Chris brought up uh, Tom Sawyer uh, sounded like something from Space Invaders because mm -hmm. there is a really famous, well, not famous, um, the television show Futurama. Mm -hmm. There's a, a great scene where their Earth is literally being invaded uh, by aliens from space. And one of the main characters is driving in this tank. It's, it's hard to describe, but I'll probably throw up a link to that clip. But he has an all rush mixtape that he's listening to while he's driving the tank and it looks like space invaders from the side. He's shooting up through the shield. That's perfect. Yeah. It's, it's a pretty funny scene, but imagine them on uh Futurama. Right. And South park. Yeah. And pretty much every show you yeah. can imagine. Well, I, that's, that's one of those things that, you know, a lot of people think of Rush as, as, as a nerd band or a geek band, and they definitely are, I, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but because of that huge shift in the way that culture 
uh, is created now in the past 20 or 30 years where, you know, nerds rule everything now. The internet changed everything. It's now nerd culture. I mean, you know, top grossing films of the year, superhero movies from Mm -hmm. comic books, Star Wars, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, they're all nerd influenced and geek influenced movies. And I think that along with that came things like, you know, Rush is is the example that's right now, but everything else that came with it too. You know, nerds and geeks had their favorite bands and they had things that they listened to and they brought them with them and then sort of infused it into pop culture. Mm-hmm. And maybe not directly. You know, I'm sure there's a ton of people out there that don't, they've heard Rush songs, but they don't really register them as Rush songs until somebody points out. Oh, that's Rush. There is a reference. Um, there's a uh, documentary called Beyond the Lighted Stage. Mm-hmm. It came out uh, eight, nine years ago. And it has, you know, Jack Black, uh, the guys from South Park, mm-hmm. Billy Corgan, all these guys. And they, they're asking them that question. And they're like, well, you remember the nerds that would try to corner you at the party in the 80s telling you about you got to listen to this band. You got to listen to this band. Well, they're the people that are now in charge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're the ones that are running everything. And they're like, well, now you're going to see it because yeah. now I'm going to find ways to work it in because this is, it's important to me. Yeah. They're the ones making the decisions now <laughs> that all comes full circle. <laughs> we win. <laughs> Nerds rule. <laughs> but it's been a, it's been a, been a difficult five days yeah. six days um surreal to the to a point and you know when you have hindsight it's it's uh you start to put things together a little bit because he was so uh productive mm-hmm. for so long and as soon as they stopped touring the expectation was you were going to see a book yeah or several books like he's going to start churning them out and he, there was this long gap of nothing and like, well, that's just doesn't seem like him. And he had said, well, I want to spend, cause he's got a 10, well has, she's still fine. Oh, he has a 10 year old daughter. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the main reasons he was going to stop touring was, was he wanted to be there mm-hmm. to, to help raise her and not be absent on the road. So you're like, oh, okay. Well, maybe he's not writing because, you know, he's devoting all his time to her. And then you start to see pictures. And I remember um, his drum tech posted a picture like a year and a half ago of them, like on a hike. And people were like, well, he's, he lost a lot of the weight that he had built up on tour, you know, Mm -hmm. stuff. And, and then you look at that picture now and you're like, Oh, yeah, he's clearly suffering. Obviously he was like his, his, his clothes were hanging off his body a little bit and you're like, Oh, and you'd be, you're, you're oblivious to all that. Yeah. Going through it. But that's the kind of person he was. He, I, I think it was less to protect himself, but and more to protect his wife and child of not re- revealing that diagnosis until it was over mm. because he would have been inundated with requests and oh yeah and all that it's like kept kept it and he and to their credit no not one of his friends 
or bandmates, assistants, anybody revealed any of this for three and a half years. And you put that into perspective of how much respect did they yeah. have for him to say, I, I'm not, it's not even going to accidentally slip out. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to take that secret with me or that, that shared confidence as long as it takes. It takes a pretty good person to, to garner that kind of respect too. Yeah. Because I mean, you know, there are those people that have that respect out of fear, but I definitely don't think he was one of those. He was, it, no. it was a respect out of, he was such a good person that people were like, no, I will gladly keep this for you. I will gladly not talk about whatever you don't want me to talk about. Mm-hmm. I think that's, uh, that's, uh, uh, impressive. And I mean, just, just how you carry yourself. I mean, I was reading a story, uh, from, uh, the guy that works at drum workshop and he was, they were helping build his next drum set for the tour several years ago. And Neil was there all the time. And he's like, I found like this cool steampunk wing nut to put on your kit. And I think it'd look really cool. And he's like, yeah, yeah, let's, let's try it. And he was never, even when he didn't like something, he Mm -hmm. never told you, I don't like this. He would say, hmm, let's try it a different way. Just a, a, I mean, a way that didn't beat somebody down and say, your idea is worthless but maybe we can take what you've had, what you have and, and work it around and compromise. And, and that's just in a, that kind of quality in anything is, a. it's amazing. It's to be valued. It's, a, it's something that I've, I've always looked at and been just like, that's, I wish I could be that good. Aspirational, right? It's tough. Yeah. But uh, I've exhausted myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did say that you were saying the other night because uh, Matthew and I normally work evenings, late mm-hmm. evenings. And uh, the last couple of weeks, we've been working mornings to do some maintenance work. Mm-hmm. And uh, which means, you know, we're on a completely different sleep schedule. And uh, you did say the other night that uh, you or the other morning that you stayed up until what, 3.30 in the morning writing? Yeah. Yeah. Putting stuff together, taking stuff out, putting stuff in, taking stuff out. I take the dog for a walk and I'd be like, just thinking and walking and thinking. And I'm like, Oh, that's, Oh, that's really good. I got to remember that. And I get home and forget everything, forget the whole thing. And then write some piece of hot garbage and go, this is not at all what I thought. Where did it go? Now, what do I do? I edited it so many times and revamped. I'm like, what, where do I want to focus? Because I know I had talked to, talked to, to you on Sunday, I think, or Monday about where I think I was headed. And that never came up one time. Yeah. And the final version of it, it's just, it's a pro it's a good process though. Uh, even things that I didn't really think I thought. Yeah. Were st- stuff that occurred to me. I'm like, Oh, that is. Because, because honestly, like looking at what, what Christian wrote, I don't remember that conversation at all. I don't remember. So, <laughs> and that one, I wasn't, I hadn't like the one in Utah, I had had a lot of beers. It's totally, <laughs> I understand why he had to DD for me and 
Dan, because <laughs> we're like, well, we'll just sit in the parking lot, wait till every other car leaves, and then we'll drive back to the hotel. <laughs> and it'll be, be no big deal. Yeah. And then he had to figure out how to make one of those weird Utah turns where he's like going down the side of like a entrance road where it's all backwards. Oh yeah. The, the weird, uh, where they shift you. Yeah. They shift you over to the side of the road and then you, yeah, we didn't know what to do with those either. Yeah. yeah. We, was it at, was it at uh, USANA? USANA. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's a weird venue. <laughs> it's weird getting in and out of there. Oh, yeah. The parking sucks. sucks. It's a fantastic venue. Oh, it's beautiful. Everything around it sucks. <laughs> yeah. It was absolutely beautiful to see it, to see a show there. And we'd gone up there. That was the second time we went up there. It's fantastic. Beautiful, beautiful venue. But it's like, what? Well, the other fantastic, How do I get out of here? The other fantastic thing about that venue is over the summer, starting in like May until September-ish, concert every Friday or Saturday night. Big concert. People that you've actually heard of before, usually with openers that you've heard of as well. Ooh. And the grass eating tickets are like 20 bucks. Yeah. It, it's amazing. It is. Yeah. It is. The only that we saw, I think it was, I want to say August. And the sun was in such a way that for the first, because their show was three and a half hours. Mm -hmm. The first 25 minutes of the show, Alex was wearing sunglasses. And the sun, you could see the sun was like right in their eyes. I'm yeah. like, well, why didn't you just delay 15 minutes, 20 minutes? I'm like, I know why. Because Neil wants the show to be over. So he can get in his bus and go ride his motorcycle in the morning. Because the longer he gets, <laughs> longer he gets delayed, he's going to get a later start, and he doesn't want doesn't want that. <laughs> he was a workman. That was that was his job. Yeah, so, that's yeah, that's cool. <laughs> that's yeah, so, that's pretty cool that he, he would bring his bike on tour and stuff. I so had a. He was the only one that would travel for the last. Okay, yeah, it'd be the last five tours. The other two traveled by plane. Mm -hmm. They get in the fancy plane. They'd fly to the next city. They'd stay at the Ritz, you know, wine and dine. Very pampered. He <laughs> would travel by bus. And the story's been repeated. But for any listeners out there that that aren't as familiar with brushes as I am, um, he would. He had four bikes in a trailer, and the and his bus. They're all BMW bikes and his security guard also rode so they had a, a main bike and a backup bike oh cool for each of them and the show would end and he he always said that he wanted to run to the stage to show to be energetic so the crowd would respond with energy and then he'd run off the stage because he really wanted to get the hell out of there <laughs> so he ran he would run off the stage right to the bus the bus would drive three hours, usually park in, he used to call it the Chateau Walmart because <laughs> Walmart allows you to park your yeah. bus and stuff in the park. So he, they'd park there and he'd sleep for five hours, get up at the crack of dawn, and they would have already mapped out what their bicycle or their uh, motorcycle trip was the next day. And he would, they would ride five, 600 miles all on back roads. Whew at all costs, avoiding interstates because he mm -hmm. absolutely hated them. So he would, they I think he called them shun pikers. Is that what, that's what he had a name for himself and his crew shun pikers, like <laughs> avoid the turnpikes, avoid, avoid the interstates. And it's all back roads and he'd ride and they'd ride 
until they got to like a hotel, like, and he would stay at super eights and just <laughs> normal places under his like assumed name, eat at the, the local diner and blend in. And yeah. no one would, no one would know who he was. And that's how he wanted to travel. He wanted to see everything he could and he didn't want to be bothered. And people left him alone. Even if he was recognized, he's like people like waitresses would bring stuff over and it would be from somebody that recognized him from across the room, but knew that he didn't like. Yeah. He wanted his privacy. So they would just send notes like, I really appreciate everything you've done, you know, have a good journey. And they would walk out and that's, he's like, that's the kind of stuff I appreciate. Again, respect and, and admiration for, we know he wanted to keep us at arm's length. So we will. So that's, we'll respect it. That's interesting. That's what I was just about to ask is because he had, you know, there weren't fans that were like, I, I feel like there aren't middle ground fans. You know what I mean? There's either people that didn't know him or people that were fans enough to know he doesn't want to be bothered. And so would they still, you know, try to contact him in some way if they saw him out on the road or whatever, but that you he already said, answered that. He I said mean, sometimes, you know, sometimes they would, he didn't pose for pictures usually. Mm-hmm. He was no, he didn't do meet and greets before concerts. The other two guys did because, and everyone always thought is because he had like a bad attitude or something. Randy just sent me a text that says, uh, would he stay away from the limelight? (sighs) Oh my God. (laughs) Well, and then a winking emoji. Well, he did. He did have free will. Oh my God. (laughs) Next, I have one other question about that for you. Did he have a, a free, like a, an assumed name that he would always use? And do we know what that was? Yeah, he would. Use, he used um, Elwood was was the last name because that's his middle name. Mm-hmm. He would go. It, I can't remember what his first name he would use, but the last name he would use was Elwood. And he had like he he wrote about this in his books all the time that they had like all these IDs printed up from the office, but so. Like with credit cards and all that. So mm-hmm. he could pay for all that stuff and people didn't go, Oh, Neil Peart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So they had, he had a, a series of them <laughs> and he would like famously like find bookstores on the road, go in and buy like, like boxes worth of books and then just have them mailed to the office. <laughs> and she would be like, um, will you stop? <laughs> You're going to have to go back on the road again. To pay for all these books, if you don't, which he's like, I don't want to go back on the road. I know. So stop buying so many damn books. But everything I've heard just, and everything that he's written, like I got, and that, that, that's the, the interesting dichotomy is everyone's like, he was an intensely private man. Yeah. He wanted his privacy, but he let everyone know about everything. If you spent the time to read his books, he, he totally Books about his childhood, books about his adolescence, books about his his tours in the early years, stuff with the the grief. I mean, there's he's he's opened up. I mean, there's there's not a lot of privacy left, but it's I will put it out to you, and you do with it as you will. But you still leave me alone. Let me live my life the way I want to live it. Go ahead. That's, that's cool. That's the, it's it's interesting when people can find a way to communicate that communicate their emotions communicate their feelings in a way that they they can actually do it and it's it's always interesting to me that so many people expect it to be 
direct. You know what I mean? They expect to be, you know, let, let me sit you down and tell me, tell you how, how I feel about X, you know, but a lot of times it's not, it's through some piece of art. It's through writing. It's through music. It's through interpretive dance. You know what I mean? It's through some other medium that people don't expect it to come through. And then people are like, I don't understand why I didn't see this the whole time. It's like, cause you're too stupid to look for it. Idiot. <laughs> Just, it's there. It's, you know, it's like you said, he wrote it all down. He put it in the music. He put it in the lyrics. He put it in the books. It's there. You just have to yeah. be smart enough to be like, oh, he's talking about the way that he felt here. He was always trying to find avenues for that. Like he, uh, the first short story he wrote was called Rain Dance Over the Rockies. And it was, it was terrible. And he said that he's like, I didn't know what I was doing. I was an experiment in prose. I don't know what I, and I don't know what I'm doing, but how do you get better unless you continue to work at it? His mom was interviewed and she's like, he had to learn, he had to learn everything. He had to teach himself how to knit because he needed to know how to do that because it just, I needed to know. And all <laughs> this, all the stuff that he would learn, I want to know how to do that. I want to fill my head with so much stuff. And I want, I don't want there to be mystery. I want, I want to do that. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. And that's, you tack life like that. Then, you know, you had a life well lived. Yeah. And he definitely had that. Mm-hmm. He definitely had a life well lived. So that's our episode, uh, folks. Um, somber one. Yeah. But, uh, real. If you have any, uh, stories about, Neil Peart of your own or Rush or any kind of musical stuff that touched you in any way like that, um, feel free to send them to us at info at audiojudo.com or Twitter, Audio Judo, or Facebook at Audio Judo, Instagram at Audio Judo, I believe it is. Yes. Yeah. Um, send them to us. We're glad that you're listening. Um, hope you stick around. And uh, thanks for joining us. Take care, everybody. Good night. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.